0: The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another live Clubland Q&A here on Stein Online. I am neither Mark Stein nor am I Laura Rosen-Cohen, but it is nonetheless my great pleasure to be with you. This is Andrew Lawton, Mark's Canadian compatriot and his uh, guest host for the guest host when the other guest host is not around. I, Laura's actually been doing it a little bit more than I have lately. Obviously, with Mark's health issues over the last couple of months. He's had to take some downtime. And just for whatever reason, when you have a guest host, it's like being the vice president. You have one job, which is just to be available when the person for whom you are the substitute is unavailable. And I was like falling short on that job for much of the last few months. So I'm glad Laura Rosen-Cohen has been there. I mean, even the last two weeks, uh, Mark couldn't do it because he was on the cruise and I was there on the cruise as well. So I know I met a lot of you and had the tremendous privilege of hanging out with you in the various sessions, meeting up in the Lido deck, uh, in one case, uh, chatting alongside each other at the pool on the Lido deck and also with others uh, singing into the wee hours of the morning in the crow's nest. So if we had uh, the great chance to cruise the Adriatic together, it was a lovely, lovely opportunity to meet you all. And I know after I said, as I was sort of playing MC duty on the cruise and at the beginning, I still have this feel that the COVID era has just been like two years or so, and that I could say, well, yes, we did this two years ago, and I it was actually a bit jarring when, at the beginning of the cruise, I realized that the last Markstein cruise had been not two years ago. In fact, it was four years ago, in the fall of 2019. And and I know that there's not going to be nearly as long to wait until the next one. But uh, my goodness, when you see how much of our lives we've lost to the intermittent lockdowns and restrictions, it, it's quite jarring and all the more pleasing to be in the company of each other once again. Because uh, I sort of had a running joke whenever I meet people at an event, which again, you can't do for many reasons, and someone asked if you have a business card. I I would always say, you know, well, it's been illegal to meet people for the last couple of years, so I don't have any business cards, but I think I need to get some new material now because I don't think that line uh, is necessarily functioning. Although I know we all live under the sword of Damocles with lockdowns and restrictions nonetheless. Uh, we are uh, not doing the whole time zone recitation thing today because I I got a bit of a late start, but I I do like to give honorable mention to uh, Baker Island and where it is uh, just coming up on 7.10 Friday morning and Anchorage, Alaska, where it's 11.10 and Los Angeles, 12.10. That's also the time in Vancouver, Calgary, Alberta, in my home and native land. uh, It is uh, now just after 1.10 and that means that when we get right up to Eastern Time where I am, it's 3.10. But I'm just going to do that little bit because I know there's always this uh, concern from folks on the West Coast that there's too much East Coast supremacy in the time zone recitation. So even though I won't do the whole time zone thing, I do like to uh, give the shout out to those in in Pacific Time and even a little bit earlier. Not sure if there are any Raritongans or Tahitians out there, but I know you're enjoying your Friday morning. Uh, The afternoon isn't much better, but uh, hopefully Friday morning is treating you well. you are. Clubland we QA are going to talk is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises the and Hill Media. The Q&A All is kind of fun is because you actually don't need to know anything specific coming in. I mean, ideally, you need to know about anything people are going to ask about, but you don't have to do like the rigorous preparation because you just have to be thrown off kilter by the question and then come up with something witty and insightful to say. So if I can manage to do that, We will call it a victory. Our first question today is from Chris Davies, who writes, Andrew, welcome back to the Niche Canadian Hot... I'm a nichier Canadian than Mark Stein. I'm I'm not more Canadian, but I think I'm more niche He says, welcome back to the Niche Canadian Hot Seat, and congratulations on surviving the Adriatic... And the reason I will uh, just take a pause here, I'm being told there might have been a brief technical issue, which I hope has been resolved now. So uh, let me know uh, if you're uh, tuning in here. if uh, if things are are working appropriately. This is, again, the problem with being a little bit rusty at doing this, is that sometimes the technical glitches befall the show. Uh, It's working now. All right, we'll carry on. Sorry about that to Chris and everyone. Uh, Chris writes, Is China becoming more free market oriented than the so-called developed world? And how do you react to the notion of the Chinese Communist Party being, quote, an anchor for peace In the free world keep well Andrew and thoughts and prayers are with mark for a full recovery Chris well I share your kind thoughts and words for mark and I I know everyone else does as well Uh, the question about China is a fascinating one though is China becoming more free market oriented than the so-called developed world and and I I could do I mean hours and hours and hours of, of content on China and i know mark has often been the lone voice talking about this issue when others in the media refused to whether it was through the covid era or through the other developments of chinese policy and international politics but the thing about china that is important to understand is that its inward project its inward identity is very different from its outward identity And, you know, all the communist stuff, the authoritarian stuff, the state control, all that stuff is relegated to the Chinese people. And the Uyghurs get their own uh, challenges from the Chinese state. But the China that exists in the global sphere, the China that exists in the world stage is not anything but a capitalist free market enterprise and to to the point that China benefits from it. And the reason I bring that up is because China is right now in the midst, for people that don't know, of, of a global takeover of sorts. And I, I'm not talking about whatever is cooking up in Wuhan. I'm talking about the Belt and Road Initiative, which is this uh, you know, trillion dollar, I mean, it's the Marshall Plan on steroids, it's a, a trillion dollar global debt trap, financial project that is colonizing, it used to be just the third world, where all of a sudden this third world uh, tin pot, uh, what Trump would call a, a bleephole country, gets this massive new airport, courtesy of Xi Jinping. And now it's becoming a a tool that even more developed countries are. The Belt and Road extends across Asia, it extends across Africa, and it extends across Europe and into the Americas. And this is China's way of colonizing the world through economics. Now, this is not something that it has done through any subversive means. It's done it by playing the very game that was established by all of the Bretton Woods folks uh, just after the end of Second World War. They've done it by using the global international banking system, the global financial system, by using free trade agreements, by using all the language of free markets. And all of these countries are now going to be beholden to China. So the reason this is so important is because China has been the victor while everyone else in the world talks about things and focuses on things which fundamentally do not matter. And it's doing this, as Chris mentions here, by acting the part of being a free market Enterprise. Now, the thing is that China does not actually believe this. I mean, China, like most other authoritarian regimes, is interested in its own prosperity and its own survival and its own self interest. Now, we can say, okay, rah, rah, rah. I mean, that's what countries should be doing. And I actually think we're right about that. I mean, China has every right to avail itself of all of these uh, tricks and tools in the world that will help it have more power. But it's incumbent on the rest of the world to not continue to make this happen. And one of the most, I mean, this isn't China, but one of the most uh, interesting scenes that's burned into my mind, certainly in the last year, has been from the, what Mark Murano called the Sharmel Shakedown in Egypt, where everyone gets together for, say, I don't know, COP 107, I think it was COP 20- 27, and they're all there, everyone around the world, because we all have to get together and talk about climate, and there's John Kerry representing the United States, shaking hands with Nicolas Maduro, the Venezuelan dictator for whom there is a bounty by the United States. But when you are all partners in climate, that doesn't matter. When you're partners in the fight against climate change, all else is forgiven. And the reason I bring that up is to say that the world has made it very easy for a terrible, terrible country to be accepted in the club if they just say the right things on climate. I mean, Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un, whatever you think about him and whatever you think about North Korea and the nuclear program and all of that, just as a moment to talk about strategy here. If Kim Jong-un showed up at a climate summit wearing a sustainable development goals pin and said, yeah, I still want to nuke South Korea. I still want to nuke the United States, uh, but I want to do it in a carbon neutral way. I'm pretty sure everyone else would just take their photos with him and welcome him in and they would all have a grand old time together because uh, like they make it that easy that all you have to do is check the box on climate. And nothing else really matters. And and China has done that as well. China has been the, the partner in climate. China has showed up to the table while well, building coal plants. But because they're talking about the environment and they talk about, oh, yes, the transition to away from fossil fuels and they do this all, not because they believe it but because they know that that's the bare minimum you have to do, and it actually seems to be working in their favor. Uh, there's a very good question. Hopefully, we'll have some more like it. The bar has been set quite high, Chris, but I thank you for that. Uh, Fran Lavery, who I had the great privilege of meeting first. I, can't, I think it was in Montreal that I met her first. No, it might have been a lot. It was, yeah, I think it was... Montreal, yeah. Uh, Anyway, Fran Lavery says, Greetings from beautiful, toasty, hot, big blue skies, but socialist state of New Mexico. I have a question, and I'm also wondering about something I think about almost every day now. On the cruise stage conversation with Alexandra, Ava, and Leilani, I heard Mark say the governments were behaving in a very uncivil way towards the people. From the people who are trying to let their voices be heard about a variety of issues during the last few years and subsequent crackdowns on their bank accounts like the truckers and Nigel Farage for speaking his mind to the crackdown on a mix of free speech liberties and or free speech and religious liberties like the recent verdict on the minister in Canada to the father who was hauled off from his home in front of his wife and children for praying at an abortion center here to the many lies and obfuscations the government tells the people daily. That's a lengthy list, but I I think it's an important list. I wonder if we could characterize their behavior more as waging war on the people. How does the general population fight back with an all-powerful government intent on destroying their own countries? Look at Venezuela and her good citizens never recovered their country and many are migrating here. Thanks for stepping up with such excellent guest hosting skills while Mark is on the mend Please send all the warmest wishes to him for my husband and me in southern New Mexico. Uh, Thank you for that question, Fran, and thank you for your premature compliment on the guest hosting, but I know you sent that before the show started, so uh, perhaps you were just being polite, or perhaps you believe that I will fill the shoes you've laid out for me, but I'll I'll do my best either way. I, I think one of the big things here is that government for the people, by the people, and of the people is an absolute sham, and I don't believe it always has been. And I don't believe in every single individual politician it is. But generally speaking, government is not a body that exists to serve. Government is a body that exists to be served. And the level of contempt that a lot of political leaders have for the people they're supposed to lead and the people they're supposed to represent and the people they're supposed to govern is astronomical and, and quite brazen. And we, we've always seen bits of this. I, I mean, Hillary Clinton, basket of deplorables. Uh, Obama, years ago, what was it? Bitter clingers was the thing. He was talking about people that just are bitter and they cling to their Bibles and their guns. And, you know, Justin Trudeau calling the uh, truckers and anyone who opposes vaccine mandates racist, misogynists, far right. I mean, all of these things are them saying the quiet part out loud because they're revealing the contempt they hold towards the people who represent, in in many cases, I'd say the bulk of the country. Now, in Canada, look, conservatives don't make up the majority. It's the sad reality that right-leaning Canadians contend with. But in the U.S., I mean, the the people that Hillary Clinton was maligning as deplorables, as we saw that election, outnumbered the people that were her favoured sons. And that's incredibly important, that the chasm between the elites and the everyman has gotten to the point where the elites are comfortable having their powerful minority, where they don't even need to have or feel the need to have a majority or to command a majority because they know they have the powerful minority. And what I mean by the powerful minority is that you can have a group that represents, I don't know, 5-10% of the population, But in that 10% are the people that happen to have the political leadership positions, the bureaucratic leadership positions, the leadership in the media, academic institutions, Hollywood elites, musicians. How, How you slice and dice this group is up for debate. But you can control the country and control multiple countries. If you have a little oligopoly in these spheres, even if you are an inconsequential blip of the population beyond that, and and that's why, just to talk about COVID, and I don't like belaboring the last four years too, too much, but there's a lot to take away from it. One of the most insidious aspects of COVID restrictions were preventing gatherings, and I know that the excuse for this was that we have to prevent the transmission of the virus. That was the, the excuse. But, but it conveniently served to keep people from getting together to talk about how little they wanted to go along with things. And it prevented people from talking about how, hey, maybe I view this thing a little bit differently than the government press release does. And then someone else at the dinner table says, oh, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I had some issues as well. But it, it's, the government did to the citizens what police do when they bring in two co-accused, which is that they split them up into different rooms so that they do not speak to each other, so that they do not conspire, because they know that if the two people have a chance to talk about it, they're probably going to come up with some version of things that is inconvenient to the state. Now, in that case, it might be trying to get out of a crime, but in the scenario I'm laying out, it's about preventing that overthrow of the regime, preventing that overthrow of the government and its stronghold on power. And I look at this happening, over and over and over again in my own country and Australia and the United Kingdom and even in parts of the United States where people were prevented from assembling to protest the very thing. They were not allowed to protest the very thing they wanted to protest because of the thing they wanted to protest. And, And governments were completely fine with this because they say, oh, well, we're following the science. It's all about public health. It's all for your own good. It's all for your own safety. But that government paternalism was about a small powerful minority exerting its influence over a majority that in many cases didn't know how much power it actually had and and you know we all saw examples of this where there was a mask mandate in place and one person would break it. One person would say, I, I'm not doing this anymore. And then other people would kind of realize, okay, maybe I don't need to put on my mask ever. And all of this thing, the, 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 these things that people were going along with would crumble because people ceased to comply with them. I mean, when the truckers got to Ottawa in at the end of January 2022, uh, the mask mandate in Ottawa died instantly because all of a sudden the entirety of the population in downtown Ottawa realized that you could just walk into a store without a mask and nothing would happen. You wouldn't just, uh, you know, grandmother wouldn't just uh, drop dead in that moment and no one would actually come and force you to put it on if there was, you know, one or two places where they did okay. But that was the thing. People didn't realize their own power. So when we talk about the WEF, just to to get into another little pet project of mine to report on and to talk about, the WEF is powerful not because it is pulling the strings on the population. The WEF is powerful because it represents a club that people like Jacinda Ardern and uh, Rishi Sunak and Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden all want to be a part of. So then their governments put these measures in place that uh, people in their countries who never voted for these things all of a sudden have to comply with. But it is still a minority. It's still a small, powerful minority that if the majority were to just realize how big it was, it could topple and upend very, very easily. So I hope that answers to some extent your question, Fran. The Notorious Mr. J writes, uh, First, best wishes for a speedy recovery for Mr. Stein. I I certainly share that, Mr. J. And concerning the Trudeau intrusion into the internet, are there any workarounds or bypasses? VPN, for instance. So I'm trying to think of how I can summarize this without just listing off the whole... uh, huge, huge, actually, a group of internet bills that Justin Trudeau has put on. But in a nutshell, Justin Trudeau is in the midst of a massive takeover and re-regulation of the internet. And and there are a few different things that they're doing. One is to bolster quote unquote Canadian content. Uh, So right now, if you are a Canadian and you tune into the radio, there is a statutory minimum amount of Canadian content that you must hear and i joke when i guest host about canadian content that's the essence of this joke is that there is in canada state mandated canadian content and that there are, there are artists that you would hear on radio in canada ...that you would assume are a huge sensation, but you go anywhere else in the world and no one's ever heard of them... ...because they were only being played because they were Canadian and they were satisfying that Canadian quotient. So there were some artists that just, again, never really existed outside of Canada because of Canadian content. And this extends to television as well. It does not extend to internet content, at least not until now... Trudeau has required, and they haven't, it's passed into law, but it hasn't gone into effect yet. All of the online companies like Netflix and YouTube and any publisher of material that exists in Canada, they now have to have Canadian content and their algorithms have to be manipulated to display Canadian content. Now, one of the hilarious stories out of the last week on this was that the porn companies. Now, uh, Montreal, I've learned recently, is like the porn capital of the world. For whatever reason, Montreal is. That's not why we do the Mark Stein events there. Totally unrelated. Uh, but Mark's uh, not Mark Stein. Montreal is the the porn cap. Mark Stein is not the porn capital of North America or the world. I believe he was edged out uh, recently. I uh, maybe it was like I don't know 1997 by my Montreal. Uh, so so Montreal has a bunch of these companies, including Pornhub, which is uh, one of the big players, and Pornhub is now trying to fight the mandating of Canadian content because right now they will actually have to have uh, mandatory Canadian porn on the homepage, so that when you log on, and I mean, I, I don't claim to be particularly interesting or uh, well versed in this, but you'd log on and you're looking through, oh, uh, okay, French maids. No, they have to be French Canadian maids now. And, uh, you know, it d- d- has to represent the diversity of Canada. So, uh, you know, any sort of strange diversity fetish will be well served with the Trudeau version of the internet. But the porn companies are now saying, well, we're kind of serving something that we don't think needs. Needs to have Canadian content as its mandate and I suspect they're going to lose and it's actually going to be hilarious to see what the government believes uh, porn algorithms should be to serve the cultural fabric of Canada but when government decides to get involved in the regulation of the internet This is precisely what is going to happen. And and it means that there's going to be government-approved content and government-unapproved content. And my own show, I do a a podcast with a Canadian outlet called True North. The name True North ripped from uh, the Canadian national, well, it's from the Bible, but also ripped from the Canadian national anthem. We cover Canadian news, Canadian politics, Canadian content. I don't think we are going to be the Canadian content that Justin Trudeau has in mind. And I think we're going to be on the losing end of the algorithm. So that's one of these things. The other thing that Trudeau has just done is uh, make it so that Facebook and Google have to subsidize mainstream media outlets in Canada for the privilege of those media outlets sharing links to their content on Facebook and Google. So there's been this very weird debate where all of the legacy media outlets in Canada say, well, Facebook and Google are stealing from us. They're profiting off of our work. And Facebook and Google turned around and said, okay, well, we'll just ban news from being shared on our platforms. And the media companies say, well, no, 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 that's not what we meant. No, 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 now you're bullying. Now Now you're blocking us. Now you're cutting off our audiences. But so far, Facebook and Google are making good on their threats, that they are actually not interested in being in the news game in Canada at all. They are only interested in uh, playing the game to their own rules. And I I don't blame them for it. These are giant companies. They are more powerful than some small countries. And when it comes to uh, having to deal with the little piddly regulations in Canada... Well, I'm not a fan of big tech companies. I'm also not a fan of big government. So I, I actually don't blame them for saying, we're, we're just not going to go along with this. We're, we're not going to deal with this. So, so right now, systematically, there are actually issues where uh, people are unable to access news on their Facebook or Twitter accounts in, or sorry, not Twitter, but their Facebook and Instagram accounts in Canada. Uh, I have not had this myself, but there are people that have tried to access uh, my own show that have not been able to. So Facebook is currently rolling this out, and it's going to be uh, eventually the case that you can't access whatever Facebook deems is news. Now, I mean, theoretically, that could be Stein Online. So links to Stein Online may at some point be blocked from Facebook. Now, is that going to happen? Maybe, maybe not. It's very difficult to say. But this is the directions things are headed. So the bill that Trudeau puts in, because he believes that uh, he gets to have the say over what private web companies do, has now worked against independent media. And I think this is very much by design. So this is a, a lengthy way of explaining what it is that Mr. J is asking about here. And there's also this future bill that they're planning on online hate regulation. And they couch it in the terms that everyone should just be okay with in their view of, oh, online safety. It's all about online safety. Well, the problem with online safety is that it means that anyone who opposes censorship of whatever the liberal government says is hate speech is viewed as being uh, someone who wants an unsafe internet. And it's actually very, very dangerous the way they're doing this. They're talking about regulating the internet to deal with a few so-called harms. One of them is hate speech. One of them is misinformation and disinformation, which we know would never be weaponized ever, right? And another is child pornography. So there is not a single person that I've encountered in Canada, even the most ironclad free speech absolutists, who support the proliferation of child pornography on the internet. None whatsoever. Yet the government is viewing child pornography as the way that they can kind of get in and start attacking critics of their attempts to regulate hate speech. Because now if you say, well, actually, I oppose this bill because you're censoring uh, the internet, they're going to say, oh, well, you must be okay with child pornography. We've already seen them use this. So this is exactly what's happening in Canada right now. They're taking the worst ideas from anywhere in the world on internet regulation and putting them all together in one package. So is there a way around it? I mean, yes, using a VPN is one option, but a VPN is not a foolproof plan. A a VPN is a little uh, tool that you can install on your computer that basically tricks your computer, tricks the internet into thinking you're somewhere else. So, you know, let's say I'm on Netflix and, you know, American Netflix has a show that Canadian Netflix doesn't have. I can just, you know, log onto my VPN and say, I'm in uh, Salem, Oregon right now. And then I I get to watch American Netflix. Now, the problem with this is that there are ways that websites can use to block VPNs. And Netflix has always been very good at this. Netflix, it's kind of hit or miss using a VPN with any success there. So websites are actually very shrewd on how to detect if someone is using one of these and then block their access. So yeah, you may have some success with this, But I I think there's a lot riding on how the companies implement these things. Because if YouTube fundamentally capitulates to the government and changes its algorithm, it doesn't matter if you use a VPN or not, you're still getting a manipulated stream of content because this company is complying with government regulations. It's actually the government that's manipulating the content. Uh, Suzanne Rennie writes, best wishes for Mark's speedy recovery. Hi, Andrew. What are your odds of Trudeau losing the next election and of the Conservative Party getting a majority. Well, I I don't do polling because I, I find it just so utterly boring and it changes by the day. But certainly as far as predictability goes, it's very difficult to see how Justin Trudeau wins another election. I mean, even the media is tired with him. Liberals are tired with him. He's got a pretty solid grip on power in his party. But I I think it's more tenuous than it looks. The the challenge we have in Canada, and it's actually, I I don't know if this is why you asked the question or if it's just coincidental, but there's been in the last two weeks uh, a discussion around the so-called experts in Canada. You know, the experts, the experts. It's just capital E experts. They're talking about how even if the Conservatives win the next election, Justin Trudeau should probably get to govern. Uh, because the Conservatives will only win a minority, and Justin Trudeau, as the incumbent Prime Minister, gets the chance to stick around if he can keep the House of Commons on his side. Now, this is like a level of... (laughs) technical detail about the Westminster system that I don't even think Canadians and Brits and Australians want, let alone Americans. So if you came for like the rock-ribbed American conservatism, I'm sorry that we've deviated into Westminster parliamentary norms. But uh, we basically have a way that is a legal and constitutional way that you could lose the election and stay in power. And that's because you don't become prime minister in the country by winning the votes of the people. You become prime minister by commanding the confidence of the House of Commons. And and I think that in a system like the one in Canada, which has effectively four parties that have a significant showing in the House of Commons— there is a chance, and it's a very high chance, that the Conservatives could get the most seats, but the Liberals and the New Democrats and maybe the Bloc Québécois and Quebec band together and say, we do not want the Conservatives to have power, so we're just going to keep backing the Liberals. Now, maybe they say we'll back someone else. We will back the Liberals, but we don't want Justin Trudeau in charge. But all of the experts talking about this as though this should be encouraged and as though this should be welcomed, and talking about it in a way that misses the most fundamental reality in a democratic system, which is that a government needs to have legitimacy in the eyes of the voters. And I'm sorry, but if Justin Trudeau loses the election and stays in power, the whole constitution, the waving the constitution in your face thing is not going to prevent an uproar from people who feel like their democratic will has been ignored. And they'll, they'll not be wrong. And again, in that case, what, what's constitutional doesn't matter if you have a population of people that feels an election was legitimate and a victory was essentially stolen. And that's going to be the thing here, and I'm very nervous about the fact that a lot of these so-called experts are already starting to lay out that argument, that that, that's already the direction they're headed. It's almost as if they want it to basically be not as out of left field when this eventually happens, and I, I think people should be very nervous about that. Uh, Toby Pilling writes, do Native Canadian Indians, well, you're not allowed to call them any of those things anymore. They they changed the name. They're now Indigenous peoples. But uh, do Native Canadian Indians, Toby writes, have special rights or special status accorded to their reservations? I just wondered how that squared with equality before the law, especially if it is race-based discrimination. So I, I will say I am not an expert in indigenous law or aboriginal law, although I did take a a course on it in university, which I ended up doing quite well in, despite finding so much of what I was being taught to be utterly absurd. But the basically, yes, I mean in Canada we do not have equality before the law entirely, because we have this law in place called the Indian Act, which goes back to the eighteen hundreds, although it's been revised and amended which sets out uh, very special definitions and terms about uh, Indian status and identity and governance and and all of this. And it's a very complex area of law. And the Indian Act, interestingly enough, is is derided by uh, Indian peoples, the ones that are are represented by this, uh, as being this racist, antiquated colonial law. And I would actually say, great, let's get rid of it. And I think there would be a lot of people in the country that would support getting rid of it. But the divide would then come on what you put in its place. Because a lot of the Indigenous peoples in Canada, they do not believe fundamentally that they are Canadian. Or that they have to be, that they have to live under Canadian law and under Canadian sovereignty. They believe that they are pre-Canadian, that their societies, their governments, their institutions, their laws predated Canada, that they were never conquered as a people, and that they should be able to continue along with that. And and there are a lot of court rulings that have effectively supported some form of that. Now, there are degrees. I mean, there are, there are the people that completely say we need to just blow up the system because it's not helping Indigenous people. And then there are others that say, okay, yes, how do we work within this system? But the problem we have in Canada is that Whenever any politician has come along and said, all right, we're going to talk about this, there's no one Indigenous leader that you could negotiate with. There's no one Indigenous group that you could sit down and reach an agreement with. There are thousands. There are thousands. And they have land claims on, in some cases, more than 100% of geographic areas are subject to land claims because you have conflicting land claims where one community says this is ours, another community says this is theirs. And uh, to, to pick between one or the other would first off side against the Canadian sovereignty that exists there, but would also just have to adjudicate a claim that no one can really adjudicate. And it's a problem in Canada for which I'm increasingly convinced there is no viable solution. And, I mean, abolishing the Indian Act, which is what Maxime Bernier of the People's Party in the last election proposed, would actually be great towards equality of the law, and it would eliminate this weird special status based on your race— but, I, but a lot of these people do not want to be assimilated and consumed by Canadian citizenship and Canadian identity. They want uh, still a, a special status for themselves based on their beliefs and and that's where you're never going to have anything universal that uh, that answers that question that's a that's a that's a b-side topic Toby very good for uh, forcing me to uh, for forcing me to like recall things that I, I have learned along the way but haven't had to talk about or, or write about in a while. Uh, MMF, right, here we go. All the people that have been very patient with the Canadian content, we have some non-Canadian questions now. Uh, MMF writes, Mark's bold reporting on the Rotherham grooming gangs never got the traction it should have. Do you think the success of Sound of Freedom in theatres will change things? After reading about it in The Prisoner of Windsor, I would like to suggest let's all go to the Strand, have a banana... For Stein Song of the Week, Prayers for Mark's Improved Health. So I actually haven't seen Sound of Freedom yet, although I have many friends who have, and I've heard nothing but good things about it, and it's horrendous. That this movie, which, again, I I mentioned child pornography a few moments ago. And I said, you're not going to find a single free speech lover in Canada or the US or the UK, unless they are themselves a child pornographer, I guess, that stands up and says, you know, I have no issue with child pornography. So... Human trafficking is another one of these things. This is not a conservative issue. It's not a Christian issue. It's universally, we're getting warnings, PSAs, uh, women's groups that are warning about human trafficking, about how it can happen to anyone. And we have this movie that's talking about this, that's telling this story, that's actually telling a story of a hero who put his money where his mouth was and actually saved lives. And this story is now viewed as being right-wing, paranoid, Pizzagate propaganda. That's basically the narrative here. This movie that Disney sat on for five years, where, as I understand, the filmmakers had to basically pry this project out of Disney's hands just so it could see the light of day. Uh, Jim Caviezel, who, again, is a very established, respected actor, at least was, maybe not anymore, so is this going to get more attention on the stories out of Rotherham and Rockdale and all of that? I, I hope so, but I, I'm pessimistic. And, and I say that just because we, we've we seen people go all in on a particular issue in the past and then they move on from it. Remember when Coney 2012 was all the rage because there was some movie that came out that talked about uh, Coney in, I think it was, was he in Uganda? Uh, yeah, Coney, Joseph Coney in Uganda. And uh, this was the guy that everyone cared about and had a need to fix. And then everyone just moved on from it after three and a half minutes. And and I think Sound of Freedom, I, I fear could do the same thing. Whereas people watch this, they leave the theater, they say, wow, I'm, I'm so glad I know about that. But there's no call to action. So everyone goes back to their corner and they kind of forget about it when they go and see the Barbie movie and come out of the Barbie movie thinking that uh, we need to smash the patriarchy instead. And then that becomes the thing. So so I, I don't say that because I, I'm trying to be pessimistic. But I, I do believe that if you want to convert something like this, convert attention and momentum into something long-lasting, you need to be able to accompany it with some level of, okay, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? Awareness is only one piece of the puzzle. And, and this was actually one of the questions a lot of people were coming up and asking about on the Mark Stein cruise and say, say what do you do with it? And and it's easier to answer the question of what do you do about it when you're talking about some of the typical political conflicts we have it's a harder what do we do about it when you talk about human trafficking because you know at its core you have two individual aspects of this on one you have you know what uh, people's individual risk levels and family situations and on the other hand you have the the global sex trade and it's a lot harder to do things uh, about something at the grand systemic global level than it is to do on the individual level. And I think social safety nets, I think family cohesion are the first and best line of defense. So whenever uh, anyone asks, you know, what do we do about this issue? It's always going to come back come back to the importance of the family. So I think that is is the key takeaway here. and And that's where you get into a risk of are the people that are the most acutely aware of this issue already doing that? And that's, the concern I have is that they might be the ones that they're already doing that. They already do care passionately about their families and communities and want to look out for each other and protect each other. Kathy writes living in Northeast us in a blue destroyed city, Philadelphia since 1950. I was thrilled beyond measure to be on the cruise with like-minded people. It was most gratifying, but I'm a bit white knuckle about Mark's health. Please may we have an update and please convey uh, to Mark, that he is in our thoughts and prayers. Well, I know he uh, occasionally reads the Stein Online comments, so I hope very much that you were able to uh, get that message to him just by asking it right there. But I am going to talk about Mark's health just very briefly for a moment because uh, this was something that I know everyone has a lot of questions about and people were asking on the cruise. Mark was joking. It was actually kind of funny because I, I have just a very dark sense of humor and I, I'm kind of of the old Kathy Shadel school of thought that anything should be comedic and that there's no such thing as too soon. So when Mark was cracking jokes in the lead up to the cruise about how, you know, he would promise to be alive long enough to be buried at sea, I found it to be hilarious. And then he meant that joke bombed on the cruise uh, because everyone on the cruise was just like so passionate about Mark and so caring and compassionate about Mark's health that even him cracking jokes about his death on the cruise, people were like, were like not booing in a, a, a negative way. They were booing out of love because they didn't want to hear the joke about Mark. Uh, being buried at sea. They all just loved Mark so much and, and were so uh, eager to see him do well. And and people were saying, stop, Mark, you're doing too much. You're you're doing too much. And, and Mark does. I, I mean, I've known him for many years and he gives so much of himself to the audience when he's doing shows every day. And then he's going up to the crow's nest and uh, meeting people in the halls. And, uh, you know, he had a, as he wrote about the other day, he had a, a bit of a rough spot on the end and the finale show and I was able to uh, I was very grateful to be able to pitch in and literally put together a one hour and 45 minute show in about 90 minutes and I I could only do that because I had uh, the great help of people like uh, Leilani Dowding and Dominique Samuels and Michelle Bachman and Ava Vlardingerbrook and James Golden and then uh, Tal and Coco Bachman we all sort of assembled and threw something together that uh, was a lot of fun for me and I, I hope was for the audience Audience as well. But the one thing that I, I do know because I've had some cardiac issues, no no heart attacks, fortunately, but the one thing I know that I can share uh, that I have no inside knowledge of, of Mark's health on just in general, is that these things are not linear. And you know the great thing about breaking a leg is that generally speaking, you know that if you keep your weight off at each day is going to be better than the last day. But when you're talking about your heart, when you're talking about uh, other aspects of your health, it's not as linear and there are going to be good days and bad days and things can stress it and strain it. And uh, the cruise was obviously a lot, not just with the travel and then there was also as is the nature of cruise a bit of a bug going around that I think sidelined uh, a few folks as well I don't know who patient zero was but uh, uh, but thankfully we didn't end up like the diamond princess just like you know hauled out into the ocean dropped anchor and, and no one can get off so uh, I, I know Mark is eager to be back and, and will be as soon as he is able to uh, but on the uh, cruise it was uh, delightful to see you and everyone else Kathy I know your question was, was basically about Mark's health there so I hope I I gave that a little bit but he did survive even longer than the burial at sea gag required so he made it off the cruise uh, which i think is important here Uh, kd writes the tale of hunter biden seems to be an excellent example of how there are two americas living side by side at least for now it's exemplified by how their respective medias view hunter biden either he is a victim of his vices watched over by his loving father or a corrupt hack at the forefront of a crime syndicate bought and paid for by China. One side even excuses a grandfather ignoring his youngest grandchild. As a Canadian, you are a little detached from it. Do you think the two Americas can continue to live side by side? How do you view the two Americas? Well, for starters, I don't think it's exclusively an American phenomenon. I, I think it certainly started there. But this siloization... Or silofication. I'll say the silofication. I think that sounds a bit cleaner. The silofication of political society happens now pretty much everywhere because you have a media that we were talking about earlier that holds uh, half of a country or even more in contempt. You have political leaders that hold the population, uh, half of it in contempt. You've got these global elites, the, the powerful minority about which I was speaking that uh, believe they get to run the show for everyone despite being a, a very small group themselves. And when you have this, you, you force people into their own little silos. You force people to grab news from alternative sources. You force people to only engage with people of their own kind politically or socially. And and it's hard to blame people for that. I mean, let's be real. Folks are getting their lives destroyed because of cancel culture, because they are maligned. Folks are getting their lives destroyed. And why would you want to associate with the people who are invested In that outcome either because they're going to destroy you if you step out of line or just because you just simply don't want anything to do with those people because of their behavior because of the way they engage with others who share your views just if if I may here there was a a gentleman in Toronto that I, I wish I had the opportunity to meet his name was Richard Bilkstow not a household name to a lot of people, but he was a principal in the Toronto District School Board. He retired recently and was doing contract work for the board in Toronto. He had been a huge a huge figure in adult education over his career, uh, very passionate. Everyone who worked with him loved him. He, in 2019, was lauded when he retired for changing students' lives. But in 2021... He spoke out about diversity and specifically the so-called equity sessions that the Toronto District School Board was forcing on, even people that were doing contract work. He spoke up about something that bothered him. It tore his reputation apart in certain areas, in certain spheres. Because you can't speak out against the diversity, equity, and inclusion cult in this day and age. And he thought we need to specifically end the lottery system for specialized programs, which had gotten rid of merit. He wanted uh, fairness. He wanted respect. He wanted all these things that we should be encouraging. And last week, he ended his life. He ended his life last week. And it's not a happy ending, It's not a happy story. There's nothing happy about it. This is a man who devoted decades of his life to teaching, by all accounts was one of the good ones, but you step out of line on an issue and your life is ruined. And a a statement from his lawyer, a woman I know very well, uh, said this was not just some random, some random thing that... Uh, happened. This was entirely because of these incidents. It was the stress and effects of these incidents that continued to plague Richard, his lawyer, Lisa Bildy wrote. And that is tragic, tragic. And (sighs) when you see stuff like this, the most difficult part of it is that you know that the people that were invested in the destruction of Reputation don't actually care. They don't care. In fact, a lot of them would say this is justice. Maybe they wouldn't say it out loud. In some cases, they will. They say, oh, well, good riddance. Because everyone's a Nazi. Everyone's a white supremacist. Everyone's a hate figure. There's no nuance. There's no, well, we had a little minor disagreement on this thing. None of that. So if someone who we've just decided is the bad guy takes their life... I know there are people out there that would not view this the way a normal, healthy human in a functioning society would, which is to say, wow, maybe we went too far. No, they look at it and draw the opposite conclusion of, oh, well, oh, well, good riddance to bad rubbish. You know, that's what these people are, are saying and thinking. I, I, could, I, I couldn't even bear, my, bear to look at Twitter couldn't even bear to look at Twitter because I just knew that was the reaction that it was going to elicit from people. And even now, I, I don't want to. I, I never met the man, but I, I still feel so so distraught over a fate that befell him that could have befallen other people that could have befell me at one point. And that is, I, I think, a very, very tragic outcome that we're going to see more of unless something changes dramatically. So I, I realize that's a depressing aside, but to go back to, to Katie's question about the two Americas, it's all of this stuff is related. So uh, when, when you have, you know, alternative sets of what a human is allowed to believe and what a human is allowed to be, it stands to reason that everything else is going to be segregated as well. You're going to have two alternative uh, narratives about, you know, Hunter Biden. In one case, he's the lily white, uh, but, you know, a little bit flawed son of a loving father. And then in another case, he's a degenerate dirtbag who no one should be looking at, that, that you know, Don Trump Jr. could have never gotten away with, nor should he have tried. I, and just on the Hunter Biden thing, I'm going to see if I can find the headline right now, because I, I was just looking at this story a little bit earlier, but basically it was, I don't think I, I I might've closed the tab at one point, but it was effectively that the FBI had confirmed to Twitter that the laptop was real and Twitter was still blocking the New York post story. So their excuse that this thing, oh, we couldn't verify it and it violated our policies. they, They had confirmation from the state that this thing was real and they were still deciding we are going to censor the New York Post. We are going to censor the dissemination of a story that has become increasingly proven to be true. And and what other purpose did that serve but to help Joe Biden's campaign? That That was the entire MO of Twitter. We have to help our guy. We have to help Joe Biden. Glenn Flint writes, Andrew, first, a big thank you to you, Mark and all his special guests for making the cruise such an enjoyable experience. We enjoyed chatting with many of the celebrities and singing songs with Tal Bachman in 10 Forward minus Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, Last night, I was dreaming of the next cruise in the Caribbean. This morning, I woke up feeling uncomfortable in my own body. Perhaps my true identity might be better realized if I were outfitted with an eye patch, a hook, and a peg leg, will these feelings pass after the cruise, or should I seek some pirate-affirming care? Best wishes for Mark Speedy Recovery. Ahoy, Glenn. Well, I, I'm not a physician, Glenn, but I will say that you can self-identify as anything you want. You don't actually need the eye, pitch, the, the eye patch, the hook, and the peg leg. Uh, you don't actually need to put in the effort right now to transition. You can just, like, wake up and wear some frilly pink tutu and say you identify as a pirate, and we have to take you seriously. Uh, based on what you say you are and not what you look like to any normal eye uh, any normal human being with eyes so you don't even need to go through all the works uh you know all the the works of getting the the eye the eye patch and the leg and all of that you can just say you're that and we'll believe you and support you and we'll affirm you we offer pirate affirming care here at stein online (laughs) glenn uh what else do we have here Uh, This is a message from John Cameron who writes really liking this jazzy intro music. Wishing Mark good health always and a speedy recovery. Any update on the Ofcom battle, Andrew? Well, uh, I, I have uh, successfully taken a government to court in the past in the landmark lawsuit Lawton v. Canada. So I have a bit of experiment, uh, experience with suing governments, but I, I've not been too involved in the Ofcom suit. I, I do know that it's moving along. Every now and then I'll see an update from Mark and uh, his, his manager about it. And I, I know that more will be shared in due course. But the one thing I will say is that it's a heck of a lot more of an expedient system than the one in the United States. I mean, I'm I'm convinced, and again, I'm just speculating here, that the Ofcom uh, case will be like won by mark, and it will be over uh, long before the Michael Mann case ever sees anything resembling a resolution. And the Ofcom case would have started... Uh, what, less than six uh, six months ago, maybe nine months ago, uh, that the offending content took place and the whole thing will be wound up and, and done, I think, before anything in the U.S. Uh, will be. And let's see here. Uh, Eric Dale writes, Andrew and fellow club members, I was wondering if you heard Mike Pence's that's not my concern line in response to Tucker Carlson's objection that funding the war in Ukraine focuses resources abroad. Well, conditions at home are deteriorating. And your thoughts on that? Did Mike Pence just sum up the Uniparty platform in one sentence? So this I, I only saw after the fact. But I found it to be interesting. And and I would actually say that when uh, most people when most politicians say something's not their concern, it would be a win because I would love for politicians to actually uh, say that most things are not their concern and just to, to butt out of it. But uh, it was interesting that the context in which this one came up. So it was uh, Charlie Kirk had actually shared a, a clip of this and Mike Pence was uh, apparently unhappy with it all uh, labeling it all as, as fake news. And then he shared the, the longer version, but uh, basically I think the thing that people need to realize about this is that there is nothing resembling an authentic moment in American politics or Western politics in general. I think you have inauthentic moments and you have gaffes. And generally, the gaffes are the only authentic moments. And it's because someone forgot what they were supposed to say or they forgot or they flubbed the line or something like that. And, and in this particular case, I, I'm kind of thinking it was like a rare moment of candor. So, you know, Tucker is talking about, you know, prioritizing Ukraine. And he says, where's the concern for the United States? Pence says, that's not my concern. That, that's not my concern. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know if in his mind he is he's trying to talk about something here that he expects everyone to be on side with. Uh, interestingly enough, this one—the Charlie Kirk clip—got the the old like community support, or what is it called, the community note on Twitter, where they're they're talking about. Uh, the tweet is framing Pence as saying he's not concerned with American cities falling, and then Pence actually says that's not my concern in response to uh, Tucker's claim that your concern is that the Ukrainians don't have enough tanks. So, so what what? mike pence is trying to do here is actually reject the framing of of tucker's question but he's done it in a way that uh, actually made it look like he's just not concerned at all about what tucker is raising which is a, a complaint that other people have raised as well which is that politicians are bending over backwards to send billions of dollars in equipment and money to ukraine Well, there are cities up and down America, Canada, the United Kingdom, and and so on, that are suffering. And look, I mean, I know whenever I talk about Ukraine on this show, I I get a bit criticized because I take a a position that's far more anti-Russia than uh, some people, and that's fine. I'm all for having the debate here. But I also think that we should absolutely be encouraged to ask the question that Tucker is asking, which is saying, hey... Are we putting too much of an emphasis on this? And I would say make the case. I mean, if you believe that this is in America's national interest, make that case. If you believe that it's in Canada's national interest, make that case. But so far, no one's asking them to make the case. So I think that in what Tucker was saying here, or sorry, what he was asking, and then what Mike Pence was responding I think it was a a sloppy way of of trying to reject the premise, but in the end, he uh, didn't actually do a particularly good job at making the claim uh, that he wanted to make there. Uh, We are winding, I've done like really depressing content for the last little while here. So uh, let's see if we have a a lighter, oh, here's one that literally starts with the words lighter question for you. So I think this is a, a good one to potentially end on here. Uh, He writes, uh, what, actually, no, I want to do a serious one first because I I just got a glimpse of this and it's, it's something that I've wanted to talk about. Matt writes, hi, Andrew, welcome to the hot seat. I'll get back to Jeff's lighter question. Are you familiar with Andrew Tate? I don't understand his appeal. He comes across as a dirt bag, honestly, very slimy. Plus he is a convert to Islam, which seems entirely opportunistic, Tucker did a two-hour interview of him, and I couldn't get a half hour into it. Many will disagree. I know, yes, young men need direction, but Jordan Peterson is a far better guide for them. Do you have any thoughts on him? Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. And and I've actually, apart from a, a few tweets, I have not... Weighed in on the Andrew Tate thing at all until now, and in, in part because, for the most part, when this thing was going on a, a couple of months back, I had no idea who the guy was, and I hadn't heard of him, and I, you know, and and I was reading the media's characterization of him, and and saying, well, this guy sounds like a dirtbag, but the media also lies about these things, and uh, but it, but it didn't really rise to the level of do I need to go down to this uh, rabbit down this rabbit hole, and and it, a, about a few weeks ago, I said, okay, I'm going to actually delve into this, and, and, and when I read into him a bit more, and I went back to look at source material, I had actually realized that I had come across this guy, and I had seen stuff from him a little while ago, and and I've been very disturbed by the embrace of him we see from pockets of the right, especially in the last couple of weeks, and I, I would actually say, you know, I've got a lot of respect for Tucker Carlson, but Tucker Carlson's uh, interview with Andrew T- Andrew Tate did a tremendous disservice to anyone who's interested in the truth about this because he made a number of claims that were just blatantly false, Andrew Tate did, that went unchallenged and that could be contradicted by Andrew Tate's own comments and his own words and his own actions uh, even as recently as a couple of months ago. And the thing about it is that if we strip away all of the accusations That have been made by the courts, uh, by by the police in Romania about Andrew Tate. And we strip away all the media characterizations of him, strip that all away. This is a guy whose business model was, his entire business was convincing girls to be webcam models on OnlyFans to profit tremendously from what these other girls were doing with their bodies for a bunch of men on the internet and cashing in on that now that like that is that is his business that's not what he says that's not what he tweets that that's just what his business was now look i'm a libertarian do what you want but you don't make your money doing that by being a virtuous, pure person. And then you get into how he approached his business. And Andrew Tate has done interviews in which he talks about the fact that he has to convince and persuade these girls to do this. And the the way he does that is by having sex with them, building a dependency, and then literally the very dictionary definition of grooming them into the place where they become webcam models. Now, these girls and women made choices. They decided to go along with this for whatever reason. But they didn't need him. Any one of them could have just gone and started this OnlyFans account and made 100% of the profits, but they didn't. He was pimping them out. So he is literally a pimp and a groomer. So if you take everything else away, is this someone that we believe should be celebrated or venerated? What is he a victim of? And, and then when you delve into further and you realize how he approaches it, what he believes about women, what he believes about the women and girls that he worked with, this is a guy who is the anti-Jordan Peterson. He, he is not teaching men to be men. He is teaching men to be degenerate dirtbags like himself. And that is the opposite Of what young men need. It's the opposite of what Jordan Peterson has done. And I I think it's actually shameful that anyone is embracing Andrew Tate right now. It's one thing to say, yes, let's criticize uh, the media's characterization of him on on this or that. And I believe in truth, I believe in honesty, and, and the media will always overplay its hand. But if we're talking about whether this guy is a victim or a hero, he is absolutely neither. Uh, Thank you for that question, Matt, truly. Uh, Jeff, now, now we get back to the lighter question. What kind of music do you like and what are your favorite movies and TV shows? So it's funny, actually, I haven't listened to the radio in like 15 years. So I don't actually know any new songs, except for like a few that have sort of broken through my bubble. If I'm being perfectly candid, and in the Clubland Q&As, I believe honesty is important, I have an unhealthy fixation on ABBA music. And it was actually lovely on the Mark Stein cruise to get to play that out with Tal Bachman in the Crow's Nest, when he just started like plucking the winner takes it all. And before you know it, we were like going through the entire ABBA gold album and all the greatest hits and even some of the b-sides up at the crow's nest with a few folks Uh, from the crews that were there. This was like the after-after show at like 2 a.m. or so. Uh, I also like a lot of country music. I like classical music. I like some classic rock. I don't don't claim to have anywhere near the wealth of musical knowledge that Mark does, but it's interesting. My musical catalog has expanded with Song of the Week when I'll learn about this like, you know, hot new track from 1946 that Mark spotlit and I'll put that on there. And that's actually when I guest host why I use Canadian Sunset, uh, the Earl Bostic version as the outro. I learned about that from Mark and I, I rather enjoyed it. So I like to play it out as an ode to Canadian content when I fill in. And as far as movies and TV shows, um, so my wife and I will do the thing where we'll just like skim through Netflix for two hours looking for something to watch, but we can't agree. And at the end of it, it's like bedtime. So we've watched nothing except for all of the samples here. She loves movies based on true stories. I like some of those, but I tend to never love uh, too much uh, when they they play fast and loose with the truth. I, I gotta be honest, my guilty pleasure is I'm a sucker for a heist movie. So, so, uh, not necessarily high art, but enjoyable nonetheless, and a nice distraction from the world. That does it for me. Thanks so much to all of you for your questions and for your membership in the Markstein Club, if you are a club member, and all tuning in as well. We will see you next time. <laughs> A bland Q&A is a production of Markstein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.